got a little video I want you to watch and pay close attention to it. You can't get it all at first, but um, it took me an hour. It's a five-minute video. It took me an hour and a half to really just break it down and listen to each piece. So I pray that after you see it today that you'll go home and maybe they can put it on the church um, Facebook page website or something. Maybe you can go home and look at it and uh, do the same thing. It says so much that uh, open your eyes to um, what we neglect in the Word of God. God wrote a book. That reality blows me away every time I stop to think about it. Pages and pages of God, his thoughts, his words, his heart, right there, just a few inches away. I can carry it with me everywhere I go, read it whenever I want. When we open the Bible, what do we see? We see God himself in this book. We meet him here or we don't meet him, not with any hope of friendship. Reading the Bible is one of the most important things we can ever do. It's more valuable than anything we own, sweeter than anything we have ever eaten. It is literally more important than breathing. That's not always what we see and feel when we open our Bible. Our weak, tired, distracted eyes look, and all we see is a lifeless, boring portrait on the wall. But it's not a portrait. It's a window. It doesn't hang lifeless in an old frame on the wall. It breaks through the wall into another world, the real world the lasting world, the better world. And through this window shines a divine light that changes everything around us. We all know that the road to knowing God is not easy. Discipline and resolve are important, but they can carry you only so far. A few days, a week, maybe a month, for the long run, we need something stronger, more compelling than discipline and resolve. There are too many traps along the path, too many hurdles. At the root, the reason we don't read the Bible is that we don't want to read the Bible. We don't see joy, peace, life when we see that leather binding on our shelf. We see a wall, not a window. The boring portrait, not the never-ending beauty beyond. So we put it off, leave it shut, and move on. We stay in bed, and we miss the miracle. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, loves to speak light into hearts and minds. God wrote a book, and with his book, 
these words in front of us. He wakens our dead, bored souls. He frees us from bondage to sin, from desires that rob us of life. He comforts the depressed, inspires the discouraged, guides the confused. He empowers us to make our lives count for his cause in the world. He satisfies us completely and forever with words, his words. So will I read my Bible tomorrow? Where else would I go? How else will I know him? How else will I prepare myself to enjoy him forever? Yes, I'll spend the rest of my life looking out of this window, watching, waiting for another sight of him, another miracle, another glimpse of my God. As I told you before, you would have to, you, you're going to have to watch that and stop it and pause it and just think about the things that he says. But God wrote a book. The God of all the universe, the God of all creation wrote a book telling us all about himself, telling us all about ourselves, telling us all about this creation that we live in, telling us all about his hope for us and his, his dream for us. God wrote a book. And yet, instead of seeing a window to all new understanding of, of, of everything that is, we see this wall, we see this boring piece of leather-bound paper, and it's just a burden to even get into it. Got anybody in here that ain't too holy to say amen? amen? I can remember a time in my life, and many of you have heard this before, so I'm not going to tell the whole story, but I can remember a time in my life when I couldn't get enough of it. This word came alive, and I've never seen anything like it. I never felt anything like it. I never. That was when the Bible became real to me. And I'm just going to go on and tell you. I'm going to talk to some of y'all this morning, especially some of y'all men, but probably some of y'all women. I was not a reader. I hated to read. By the time, before I started reading the Bible, I had read one book in my whole life. It was called Justin and the Best Biscuits in the World. It was 90 pages long, but guess what? The words were about that big. So it really, if they had to put it in regular print, it probably would have only been about 20 pages long. But I read it from front to back all the way through. That's how much I enjoyed reading. I was not a reader. I did not care anything about reading. But I'm going to tell you, something happened to me whenever I... And, and, and I've told this testimony to some of you. There came a point in my life, and I was a confessing Christian at this time. All right? I'm not talking about the day I got saved. I'm talking about I was a confessing Christian several years into my walk. And then one day I said, you know what? 
I'm tired of playing. Either God is who He says He is, or I'm out. <laughs> I stay at home. There's so much more I can do on Sundays. There's so much more I can make use of my time. There's so many more things I can enjoy in life and not have to feel like that, that this is not something that God wants me to do. So either He's going to be real or He's not. And the only way to find out, as far as I was concerned, was to let him tell me who he was. And I found a promise in his word. This promise came from Jeremiah 29, verse 13, I think it is. But he said, You will seek me, and you will find me, when you seek me with all your heart. Let me tell you something. God does not reward anyone by giving himself to aimless people. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. There needs to come a point in each and every one of your lives to where you reach that same point to say, God, I want to know. If you are everything you say you are and this is all that it is supposed to be, I want to know it for myself. And the search is on. And when you get into the search, I can promise you, he has said, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. God wrote a book. And it is a window for us to look out of. It's not a wall for us to look at some picture. It literally is a window into a whole nother dimension, into a whole nother world, into a whole nother realm of things that we can't even see happening into the spiritual realm. And so I pray this morning that, that maybe something I say in this message is going to lead you to go on the search like I did once upon a time and trying to get back there. I told you that before. I still read my Bible and I still do a lot of stuff, but I'm still not back to where I was. And I want to be back to that place. I want to be back there and then go even further. Anybody with me on that? And so I pray that something I say or something that God says to you this morning will cause you to do that. Turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 2 verse 42. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And if you would, if you have the means and are able, we just stand in giving reverence to the fact that this is more than a book. This is God's book. This is God's word. And so we just show our respect by standing as, as, we, as we read it. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. This is what it says. And they devoted themselves. We're talking about the early church here, all right? Early Christians. This was a church that was growing. It was a big church. And it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Some versions say to the apostles' doctrine. We're going to get there in just a minute. And to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread what we just did a minute ago, and to prayers. You can be seated. <clears throat> Pray with me one more time. Father, I come to you this morning, and Lord, I just ask you to, um, to do what you do. Father, this is not um, 
something that I can accomplish on my gifts or my abilities. Lord, it's, I can do nothing without you. I know that. So, Lord, unless you come in and you do what you do, then all of this will be in vain and for naught. So, Father, I'm asking you this morning that as we read your word, that you would make it come alive, Father. Lord, the same way that I have felt you do it many times before, but I pray that you would do it for all of us this morning, that it would come alive and that you would show us a little bit more about who you are and how you reveal yourself to us. Father, I just pray this morning that everything that's been said and done so far has been pleasing to you. Lord, I pray that from our hearts we have gave you worship and praise. From our hearts we remembered your sacrifice for us. And right now, I pray that you would help us to have open hearts and open minds to just truly hear your word and what you want to say to us this morning. So, Father, I ask you to do these things in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to start a series this morning on the importance of doctrine, the importance of the apostles' teachings. I pray that you would not get bored with me. I want you to know, and I, you're just going to have to take my word for it right now, but as you go through your Christian walk, you're going to begin to understand why doctrine is important. This Christian church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You know what it means to be devoted to something? It means to be sold out to it. It means that their top priority was learning doctrine. See, we look at doctrine and we think about theology and we think boring and we think, I'm not a pastor, I'm not trying to go to seminary, I don't need those things. Yes, yes you do. I'm going to tell you, doctrine has probably been one of the few things that God has used in my life to bring me back on course when my ship goes astray. And I'm an easy one to go astray. Some of y'all may stay on course very easily. Some of y'all may be one of those that you just set your feet to the fire and you're, you just stay on path. I'm not that guy. I'm not that guy. I come off course pretty easy. I come off course, and, and, and sometimes it takes me a while to get steered back. And my old crazy head, I wish y'all could live inside of this skull for just, a, just maybe an hour. You just have no idea the things that, that, that we deal with. And so it takes things like doctrine, the truths of the Scripture, to point me back and to get me back on true north, to get me pointed back in the direction that I'm supposed to go. So for the next several weeks, we're going to concentrate on some uh, doctrines that I, I haven't concentrated on before. We're, uh, and let me define doctrine for you so that you understand what I'm talking about. Doctrine is all the combined truths on any given subject. So when we're talking about biblical doctrine, I'm talking about any subject you want to talk about and all the combined truths that God has to say about that particular subject, no matter what it is. So we're going to cover just several uh, doctrines from the Word of God and, and, and hopefully it's going to help us to conform to the truth, to keep us on that straight and narrow, to help us stay pointed in the right direction. We're going to look at things like the doctrine of justification. Justification, have you ever heard of somebody that they were justified in something? 
they were on trial for something and they were justified for something that they were done. In other words, when they left that courtroom, they were free and clear without any conviction. No one could hold them accountable for those crimes any longer. They were justified in what they had done. And I want to talk about the doctrine of justification. How is it that you are free and clear as a Christian? And what does that mean? How did that take place? And so we're going to look at that. We're going to look at the doctrine of once saved, always saved. A doctrine that, just to be honest with you, the way that it's taught in the majority of churches today, I disagree with completely. Now, when it's taught correctly, yes, I believe that there is a level of truth to it. But I want to tell you this morning that just because somebody comes up and prays a prayer, that does not mean saved. So instead, we're going to talk about a doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. And we're going to look at what the Scriptures has to say about, about the ones that are truly saved are the ones that persevere. We'll get into that. We're going to look at um, a doctrine of work. You know, here's the thing about it. We understand work today as labor and toil. A lot of people say whenever we get to heaven and eternity, there'll be no work. That's a false doctrine. Actually, work is a good thing. Labor and toil turned work into something that is not good. You take labor and toil out of it, work is enjoyable. Work is something that, that God put Adam in the garden to work. And so we're going to look at the doctrine of work. We're going to look at the gifts of the Spirit. We're going to talk about those tongues. That's right. We're going, to get into, um, we're going to get into the doctrine of the Trinity, doctrine of suffering. Those are just a few that I've got on my list to go through. So those are some things. But today I want to start with this right here, with the doctrine of the Word of God, the doctrine of the Bible. And the title of my message today is this, Can I Trust the Bible? That's a good question for you to ask yourself. Can I trust the Bible? You know, some years ago, Nick will probably remember, I don't know how many years ago it's been, but when we were young and younger and just getting started in this thing, uh, before he ever started pastoring, before I ever started pastoring, uh, we started a class back here in this little middle classroom. It was supposed to have been a college and career class, and it ended up being a um, what do you believe and why do you believe it class. You remember that? And man, we were so young and dumb, we dove into things and thought we had it all figured out. And we would dig into a doctrine and really thought that we could figure it out in just a day's worth of study. Um, and, and, and we figured some things out. And as I've grew throughout the years, I've looked back at some of that. And I've still got notes from back then. And I go back and I pull out some of my notes and I look down through there and I go, I had a lot to learn. And I know today I still have a lot to learn. But I'm growing in my doctrine. But we covered many different subjects and we started a fire in some people to, to figure out what they believe and not just what they believe but why they believe it. See, I was raised up in a different denomination. It was a Christian faith but it was not the same denomination. They didn't view things like baptism and Lord's Supper and church membership. There, there, uh, there were a lot of things that they didn't view the same way and their beliefs were different than that. And so I didn't just want to be a Baptist because I went to a Baptist church. My wife will tell you, we went on to search. 
I was looking at the Church of God's, the Pentecostal face. We were in the Presbyterians. We, I mean, the Methodists. There were God put us in every kind of denomination you could think of during that time period. And I had to listen and explore what each one of these believed and why they believed it. And now today, I am a Christian that stands before you that if you ask me on pretty much any subject... What do you believe on this? I can tell you, here's why I believe it. And it's not just because it's what I've always been taught. I believe it because I've explored it for myself. Because I searched God out for myself. And because the Word of God has shown me that this is what it teaches. And that's why I believe it. And so, if you think about it, if you base all of your beliefs on the Bible, that's great. But how do you know the Bible's true? I mean, think about it. There are other religious books and there are other religious prophets. There's the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith. Are they? Would you tell them to just believe their book? They need to know what they believe and why they believe it, correct? What about the, um, the, the Jehovah's Witness and the Watchtower? The prophets in the watchtower that give them their prophecies and give them their direction and their writings and stuff. Would you tell them to to just, just believe it? They're prophets, right? Hey, I'm a pastor. Just believe everything I tell you. Right? No? What about the Koran? That's a holy book. Muhammad, the prophet, the prophet. Receive word from God. So, wh- what about the Koran? What about Scientology? L. Ron Hubbard. They have all these books that they, that they go by and they believe. Do you see what I'm getting at? It's good that your beliefs are based on the Bible, but can you trust the Bible? You need to ask that question. I'm going to show you from Scripture. Uh, and I, I want to remind, uh, some of y'all remind, I've told you this before, I was witnessing to a friend of mine one time, just telling him about Jesus, and, um, and I went to pick up the Bible to show him about the plan of salvation in the Bible. And when I went to pick the Bible up, he stopped me and he said, No, 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 stop. Listen, I believe in Jesus, but this book right here, It's been passed down through too many hands, through too many translations, too many copies, too many people, too many flaws. I don't believe the Bible. I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe the Bible. I didn't know what to say. I stopped, and that was my stopping point. I said, well, okay, brother, I don't guess there's really anything else I can say to you because this is what I base everything on. But, you know, I've thought about that over the years, and the truth of the matter is, that was a legitimate question. That was a legitimate concern. And we need to be able to understand for ourselves, can I trust the Bible? Can I know that this is the Word of God? And so, I want to show you from Scripture that even the Bible advises that it's wise not to trust every spirit. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 In 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, he said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but what? Test them. In other words, the Bible says that it is a good thing for you to test something. It's a good thing for you to make sure 
that it is what it says it is. So test the spirits to see whether they are from God. And here's why. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So yes, there are a lot of other religious books that have been written. Our early church fathers went through a long, hard process of about 1,500 years of trying to make sure that the books that did not belong and were heretic, I guess you could say, they, they threw them out. When you go back and you do some studies and some research on church history, you understand why they did some of the things they did which were borderline, but not borderline, they were bad because they were trying to protect something that they believed in. They just went about it the wrong way. But many false prophets have gone out into the world. So test the Spirit and know it's of God. In Acts chapter 17 verse 11, uh, Paul actually commends these Jews. He says, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they received the word with all eagerness. But here's how they received it. They examined the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Now here's what you had. At this time, they had the Old Testament Scriptures. They were Hebrews. They were Jews, right? They don't have a New Testament. So here Paul comes in teaching them things that they've never heard before other than prophecies from the Old Testament. And so they listen to what Paul has to say about the Messiah, about Jesus Christ, and they take that and they examine it according to what they know and have found to be true. And because they didn't just believe it, the Bible actually commends them as being even more noble than all the rest that heard the same message because they took the time to actually examine this and not just believe it. And that's the same thing that I believe the Bible would advise you to do. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who ask you for a reason for the hope that is in you. You see that? Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Always be ready to give it a defense. I should have been ready that day when I was talking to my friend. And it was a learning process for me, just like it will be for you. But I should have been ready that day when that friend told me, I don't believe the Bible. I should have been ready to say, I respect that. Can I tell you why I do? Can I tell you why I trust it with my life, with my eternity? And I should have been ready. Always. Notice that. Always be ready. That means there's a preparation that has to take place. Correct? So, the question I want to answer this morning is this. Why do I believe the Bible? And that's the question I ask myself when I put this message together. Why do I believe the Bible to be God's infallible Word? Why do I believe that? Now I'm going to give you six of them and these are not numbered by importance. Matter of fact, they're probably going to start out as least important to most important. It's probably the way that it's going to go. But I want to answer the question, why do I believe the Bible to be God's infallible Word? Number one, I believe it because it gives the answers to all of life's questions from Genesis to Revelations. I have found in this book every answer to every question that I've ever wanted to know. Even to the answer, why is there suffering in this world? 
Why do I suffer the way that I do? Why do we have to go through the things that we do? I have found those answers in this book. And in this book, it actually from Genesis all the way to Revelations, you go from how everything was created to why everything is the way that it is or the fall. And then you move into what God can do about our fallen situation and that is redemption. And then you move from redemption into restoration and from Genesis all the way to Revelation, step after step after step, it gives you every answer that you need to know from Genesis to Revelations about this life and why it is the way. And here's the thing about it. It flows and it all agrees together. We're going to get into some things that people call variations here in a minute and that people say that this is conflict and that this is not correct. And we're going to get into just a few of the major ones that they talk about here in just a minute. But I want you, I don't have time to go over all of this this morning, but if you want to know about point number one, if you've got SoundCloud or if you've got the church website and you can go back to sermons, in 2016, I preached a sermon that was entitled, I looked it up, it was titled, The Gospel, The Story of the Bible. And I covered from Genesis to Revelations as much as possible in an hour. And I showed you how this whole book flows together no matter where you go in this book. It all points toward Jesus Christ. If you missed that message or if you want to know why I say I believe the Word of God because of the way that it flows and because of all the answers that it gives, go back and listen to that message again. Or go back and listen to it for the first time and you'll understand why I say that. Number two reason why I believe this Bible is the infallible Word of God. There are external evidences. In other words, I'm not just using circular reasoning here. I'm not using the Bible to prove the Bible. There are external evidences. Time would fail me to tell you of all the archaeological finds. That, But uh, is there anybody in here that went through our, our um, studies on Wednesday nights where we had archaeology every, every Wednesday night? We got a few that are left in here. Every Wednesday night when we went through 1 and 2 Samuel, there wasn't a lesson we went through that we didn't have some proof of archaeology of that story that took place in the book of Acts. We went through, and no matter where you went to in the book of Acts, there was evidence that what the Bible was saying was true. When we went through the churches of Revelations here just a few months ago, I think it was during Christmas time, we went through archaeological evidence of every single thing that was written about those churches. But time would fail me to go from Genesis to Revelations to show you all the proof that is there. So let's just look at three external evidences of historians that wrote that you can go find their books today, just like the Bible. They were written at the same time that the Bible was written as far as the Gospels are concerned. And you can go find their books today. I'm going to tell you the name of their book. I'm going to tell you the, the number of the book. I'm going to tell you the chapter of the book. And I'm going to tell you exactly where to go. So all you've got to do is put it in your phone right now this morning as I say it. And you can probably pick it up and read it for yourself. As a matter of fact, let me get my phone so that I can read one of them myself. The first one I want to talk about is Josephus. 
Josephus was a Jewish historian and the name of the books that he wrote was called The Antiquities of the Jews. Now, how many of you know that Jews and Christians didn't get along back then? What did the Jewish faith do to Jesus Christ? So Jews and Christians, they didn't mesh. This was a Jewish historian. And this is what he wrote about Jesus Christ in book 18 of the Antiquities of the Jews in chapter 3 of book 18 and they're numbered, paragraphs are numbered, paragraph number 3. This is where you can find this information. He talks about Jesus and his quote, wonderful works. And then he gives a description of his death. And he wrote all this after the Gospels. So think about this. At any time, this Jewish historian could have refuted anything that Jesus had done according to the Gospels. He fed how many with five fish and two loaves? And yet at any moment, this man could have said, Hey, <laughs> that didn't happen. At any moment, this man could have said, He didn't heal the blind. He didn't cause the lame to walk. All those things y'all read about in Gospels, that didn't happen. But instead, this is what he wrote. He said, Now there was about this time a man named Jesus. He was a wise man. If it be lawful to call him a man. Now think about this Jewish historian, what he's writing about Jesus. For he was a doer of wonderful works. Now why would he make the statement that it's not, it may not even be lawful to call him a man because of the works that we saw him do. A Jewish historian. And then he says, He was a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over many to him, both of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was known as the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross... Those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these, and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of the Christians, so named from him, are not extinct at this day. That's what the Jewish historian had to say about Jesus Christ. That's not the Bible. That's not the Bible backing up the Bible. That's one of the Christian's enemies, if you will. Not seriously, but at that time. And he backs up what Jesus has done. Next, I'm, I've only I got three of them. This is the second one. Next is a pagan Greek philosopher. You know what a pagan is, right? He was a pagan Greek philosopher. His name was Marabar Serapian, all right? And he was taken prisoner during Rome's conquest over Syria. And while he was in prison, he received a word that his son, his small son, whom before he was taken prisoner, or before Rome conquered it, he had been training his son up in Greek philosophy. And he was learning, and he was so smart. And then he heard word that his son was turning away from things, that he was depressed because he was being dragged from city to city, and he was basically an orphan. And so he had quit his studies. And so he wants to write his son a letter and he, he tells in this letter of unjust treatment of three wise men. Socrates, which I'm sure you've heard of. He talked about his unjust treatment and his murder. 
And then they talked about the burning of a man named uh, Pythagora and the execution of the wise king of the Jews. He don't name him Jesus, but this is what he says. He says, Son, what are we to say when the wise are dragged by force by the hands of tyrants and their wisdom is deprived of its freedom by slander and they're plundered for their superior intelligence without the opportunity to make a defense? They are not wholly to be pitied for what benefit did the Athenians obtain by putting Socrates to death, seeing that they received as retribution for it famine and pestilence. So he's saying, he's trying to tell his son that, listen, God takes justice on those who treat innocent ones unjustly. But then he goes on, he says, or what about the people of Samos by the burning of Pythagoras? See that in one hour the whole of the country was covered with sand. He said, whenever they did this to this innocent man, in one hour the whole thing was covered with sand. But then he says, or what about the Jews when they murdered their wise king? He don't call him Jesus. He says, seeing that from the very time that they murdered him, their kingdom was driven away from them. For with justice did God grant a recompense to the wisdom of all three of them. And then he goes on to say a little bit more about each one of them. But the basic thing that I see here is that here we have a man who is trying to encourage his son and he's trying to think of the wisest people that he knows. And you know who he uses in his pagan belief? Jesus Christ. He puts him up there with, in their religion, Socrates. You didn't get no greater than that. And so here he was putting Jesus up here on the same scale. One last external source, Roman historian Senator Tacitus, I believe is how you pronounce his name. In his book 15 of chapter 44, he tells a short story of Jesus' crucifixion and he names all the same biblical names. He gives credit again to the truth of all the Gospels. And this is a Roman senator, a Roman historian, that tells what the Gospels tell. And then Josephus actually has a same story in his about the beheading of John the Baptist and why he was beheaded that lines up exactly with what the Bible says. I'm just stopping with three. I don't have time to go through more and more and more of the external evidences that survive today that back up what the Bible says. But then I'll go very quickly through these next ones. Number three reason why I believe the Bible is true and it's the infallible Word of God. Even though the Bible is 66 books by 40 different authors written over a period of some 1,500 years. Remember, this book was not sit down and wrote in a single day. It was written over a 1,500 year period by 40 different people who were shepherds, musicians, uh, soldiers, kings, uh, uh, businessmen, physicians, all walks of life. And even though it's 66 books by 40 different authors written over a period of some 1,500 years, and they were written in three different ancient languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, even though they were written in three different languages and on three different continents, they weren't even written on the same continent. All of these books were written either in Africa, Asia, or Europe, but yet they all have unity with one common storyline. How do you take men, 40 different men, from three different continents across 1,500 years, 
three separate languages, 66 books, 40 different authors. How do you do that and make it flow from Genesis to Revelations and tell one common story, the gospel of Jesus Christ? The only way you do that is that God wrote a book. God wrote a book. You know the New Testament has more manuscripts, and when I say manuscripts, I'm talking about handwritten pieces of paper. The New Testament has more manuscripts handwritten than any other major ancient work. Like Aristotle or Plato, they, they actually have surviving today anywhere from 1 to 20 of their works that actually survive today. Listen to this. The New Testament has 5,800 Greek manuscripts available. 5,800 to compare to one another. Now how easy would it be to find a mistake in 5,800 samples? But then not just Greek samples. There's over 10,000 manuscripts in Latin. And there's over 9,000 in other languages. But we still have a 99.5% accuracy between the comparison of all these manuscripts. But I hear somebody in their mind, and you know what they're saying to me right now? What about the 0.5%? Alright, let's look at just a couple of the major 0.5% because the minors are things like spelling, like uh, they'll say, okay, this one out of the 5,800 Greeks, this one said Christ and this one said Lord. That's the truth. That's where they pull out a variation. Or this word was misspelled. That's the variation, but here's the major ones. Somebody uh, turn to Mark chapter 16. Here's the major ones, so that you know what the major comes from as far as the inaccuracy of the, all those manuscripts that we're talking about. If anybody has a study Bible, this is one place where a study Bible comes into play. <clears throat> In Mark chapter 16, beginning in verse 9. If you have a study Bible, right above it, it probably says, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. Okay? So here's what's left out. Where Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene, which you can find in either Matthew or Luke, whether it's in Mark or not, where Jesus appears to two disciples on the road, which the same story is also told in Luke, whether it's in Mark or not. And then the Great Commission, which was also done in Matthew chapter 28, whether Mark tells it or not. So, okay, let's say that there were a handful out of all these that didn't have verses 9 to 20 in them. Take it out. Has it changed the Christian doctrine at all? Has it made any influence on it at all? Not even a little bit. But that's the variation they say is major. Major difference. Out of 5,800 Greek transcripts and 9,000 Latin transcripts or 10,000 Latin transcripts and you say that's the major variation that you say we can only have a 99.5% accuracy? Tell me, how does that happen? God wrote a book. God wrote a book. 
Another variation, same thing, comes from John chapter 8. If you have a study Bible, you can look, see it for yourself. But in John chapter 8, the woman called in adultery. There are actually some places that put it, there are some manuscripts that put it in a different place in the book. Instead of John chapter 8, it's in another place. But the story is the same. I don't care whether you put it here or here or here. If the story is the same, then guess what? It don't change one single thing about our doctrine and about what we believe. So these are what you come up with. 66 books, 40 authors, 1,500 years worth of writing, three different languages, three different continents, and this is what you hold on to for inaccuracy? I wish somebody could tell me today that this is not the living Word of God. Number four, Jesus believed the Bible was God's living word. Now again, this is not circular reasoning because we've already proved that the New Testament is absolutely the word of God. There's no other way. But Jesus believed in the word. I'm going to go through just a few scriptures so that you can see. If Jesus believed it was reliable, then guess what? If everybody else says Jesus was who he says he was, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 18. Excuse me. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Do you know what the Old Testament consists of? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, Jesus saw himself as the fulfiller of the scriptures. And he said, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota. Y'all need to look that up and see what it means. Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all of it is accomplished. Jesus believed that the Bible was the Word of God. Luke chapter 24, verse 44 and 45. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, has he left anything out of Scripture yet? must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scripture. You want to know the key to open your mind to understanding the Scriptures? Read it, but read it and understand that it's all about who? Jesus. The whole thing. No matter whether you're in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, no matter where you're at, the key to unlocking the Scriptures is understanding that all of it is about Him. If you can't grasp that, see me afterwards. I can help you grasp it. Last Scripture on that, Mark chapter 12, verse 19 through 24. He says, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise, us, raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus said that you knowing the scriptures that he believed to be the Bible is the way to keep you from being wrong and the way to keep you out of doctrinal error. 
So Jesus believed the Scriptures were the Word of God. I have many, many more I could give you. Number five, I've only got six. God commanded that His inspired words be written by men. That's another reason why I believe the Bible is the Word of God. Because God commanded men to write it. Look with me at Exodus chapter 17 verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, what? I'm waiting on you. Write. Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. Go with me to Exodus 24 verse 4. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar, altar at the foot of the mountain. Here's the point that I'm getting to. Moses understood. You know why Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy? You know why he wrote those books? Because he lived them and because God said, write. God commanded him to write. And so God has always given us His Word through inspired men. Exodus 34 verse 27. And the Lord said to Moses, what? Write these words. Again, God commanded. That's just Moses. I don't even have to get into the rest of them. Number six reason why I believe the Bible is the Word of God. The most important proof of the Bible's authenticity is your own personal meeting with Jesus through the Scriptures. You remember what I said earlier in this thing, that I remember the time in my life when I went after him on my own? And he showed himself to me. I saw him. Listen, I'm telling you the truth today. I remember telling, I think it was Joe and Teresa this, we were riding down the road one day and I told them this. I said, there was a point in my life that I looked at this thing and said, listen, I'm, this thing's either going to be real or I'm getting out. I'm not a preacher today just because I like to preach. Truth matter is, I don't like preaching. I'm a preacher today because I believe what this says. I believe it. I have found it to be true in my own life. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3 through 6. One of the last two scriptures that I've got. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, who is Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, here's what He said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you don't get that this morning, I pray that you would go home and meditate on this scripture and ask God why you don't understand this. Because I remember when God showed me the glory of Himself in the face of Jesus Christ. And I remember the day the light went off and I saw the Bible for what it was. And that is the day that I began my search and I could not get enough of it. No matter where I went, no matter what part I went, I dug and I dug and I dug. That's the day I became a reader. I never was a reader. But today I am. Number six, uh, that, that was number six. Listen, here's the thing about it. You'll know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Bible is true when God opens your eyes to who He is and who you are and who Jesus Christ is to you. 
you will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Bible is true. In closing, last verse, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. All Scripture is breathed by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All Scripture is breathed out. I don't have time this morning to go through how we got our biblical canon and how we have the books that we have today. Um, I've got just a little bit of history on it right here, if there's anybody that would like to know that. But I encourage you to go home and do some research yourself. How did we get our biblical canon and how did it come to pass? Because all Scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for your teaching. So I pray that today that you can leave here saying that this is more than what I have always seen it to be. This is not just a leather-bound bunch of papers with some words written on it. Listen to me when I tell you, God wrote a book. That's amazing to even think about. God wrote a book. He tells us all about Himself in it. He tells us all about ourselves in it. He tells us all about this world and why it is the way that it is. And He tells us all about the next world that is to come in both eternal bliss and eternal torment. He tells you everything there is to know in this book and yet we neglect it for temporary pleasures, for passing pleasures. I pray that today maybe you'll take some time to seek God out for yourself. Remember Jeremiah Chapter 29, verse 13. You will seek me, and you'll find me. You'll find me. Listen, I think it's awesome that you come to hear us preach. I think it's awesome that you want to learn from us. But you know what I'd love more than anything? For you to find him yourself. I'd love for nothing more than you have the same experience that I had, that you open your Bible up and God says, hey... Here I am. And then you can't get out of it. He promises, you will seek me and you will find me. When you seek me, what's that last part? With all your heart. Go on the search for him. The Bible can be trusted. It can be. It is the word of God. And I pray that you go looking for him in it. Y'all would stand this morning. I don't even know how to give an invitation for the next few series. Um, It's going to be more teaching than it is anything. But maybe God spoke something to you this morning. Or maybe it's just something you want to pour your heart out to Him in the altar about. Whatever it is that that you need this morning. Maybe this morning is the morning that you say, Hey, I don't have that relationship like you're talking about. Maybe we can talk about whether you have a relationship at all yet. I don't know. But I pray that today before you leave that whatever it is that God's stirring on your heart right now that you would let Him work in your life and you let us help you work through it. So whatever we can do to help you, we're here this morning.